Welcome to the Digital Edge with Sharon Nelson and Jim Calloway. Your hosts, both legal technologists, authors, and lecturers, invite industry professionals to discuss a new topic related to lawyers and technology. You're listening to Legal Talk Network. Welcome to the 163rd edition of the Digital Edge Lawyers and Technology. We're glad to have you with us. I'm Sharon Nelson, president of Sensei Enterprises, an information technology, cybersecurity, and digital forensics firm in Fairfax, Virginia. And I'm Jim Calloway, director of the Oklahoma Bar Association's Management Assistance Program. Today, our topic is the rise of re-regulation in the legal industry. But first, we'd like to thank our sponsors. We would like to thank our sponsor, NOTA, powered by M&T Bank. NOTA is banking built for lawyers and provides smart, no-cost IOLTA account management. Visit TrustNOTA.com forward slash legal to learn more. Terms and conditions may apply. We would like to thank Alert Communications for sponsoring this episode. If any law firm is looking for a call, intake, or retainer services available 24-7-365, just call 866-827-5568. We'd also like to thank our sponsor, The Black Letter Podcast, a show dedicated to making law exciting and fun with informative interviews and advice from esteemed guests. We'd also like to thank Scorpion. Scorpion is the leading provider of marketing solutions for the legal industry. With nearly 20 years of experience serving attorneys, Scorpion can help you grow your practice. Learn more at scorpionlegal.com. Our guest today is Jordan Furlong, who's an internationally renowned legal sector analyst, author, speaker, and consultant, deeply invested in a better future for the legal profession and the society it serves. Over the past 20 years, Jordan has forecast critical new developments and discerned emerging patterns in the legal ecosystem and has addressed thousands of lawyers and dozens of audience across four continents about the rapidly evolving legal services market. Based in Ottawa, Canada, Jordan is currently focused on serving clients in the area of lawyer formation, education, and licensing, and the legal services regulation. Thanks for joining us today, Jordan. Thank you very much, uh, Jim and Sharon. It's fantastic to be back here again. Uh, well, you're, we're very happy that you're here discussing the rise of re-regulation in the legal industry. So tell me, Jordan, what does re-regulation even mean? Is this the same thing as deregulation like we saw in the airlines and with other industries? Oh, yeah. No, for sure. Re-regulation is a completely different uh, beast, Sharon. Uh, deregulation is, from my point of view, it's about taking away all or, or most regulatory oversight and guardrails in, in a sector or an industry and letting the market you know, do as it will which has, of course, been highly problematic in many industries and would just be a disaster in law. Re-regulation, from my point of view, is about reforming regulation. It's about getting it right, you know, Get, getting back to basics and saying, look, what are our goals here? What are our priorities and purposes? Why are we doing all this? And then saying, okay, does our current regulatory structure align with these priorities and drive us toward these goals? And if not, how do we fix that? 
Now, the way I look at it, our current regulatory goals are, or certainly ought to be, to protect the public interest in legal services delivery and to give people meaningful, affordable access to justice. So from the way I look at it, re-regulation is about restructuring the regulation of legal services so that it achieves these ends. A term we keep hearing a lot these days is sandboxes. And other states either have them and are are talking about setting them up. What's a legal regulation sandbox and what are these supposed to accomplish? Yeah, like a sandbox in, in the legal regulatory, and not just legal, other industries have them as well. A sandbox is essentially a supervised laboratory for non-traditional legal services delivery. And I kind of wish we'd started with laboratory as our word here, <laughs> rather than like <laughs> sandbox or playground, which, you know, has all sorts of not great implications, but, you know, here we are. And I think laboratory is better because... All of these entities that we're talking about within the sandbox confines, they are really, they're supervised experiments in legal services provision, right? In a regulatory sandbox, a person who isn't a lawyer or an entity that's not a law firm can provide legal services in a jurisdiction, even if the overall regulatory scheme forbids that type of service or provider. And the point of doing this is to measure in a controlled context the mix of risk and reward that is found by providing these services in this particular context. And if the reward exceeds the risk, then the provider should be approved. It's pretty simple, actually, and it's it's really, it's already what we do with lawyers anyway. It's the same basic process. And this is why I think the idea of a laboratory is a good analogy for us to use, because when you look at how these sandboxes operate, they, they bring in these experimental providers of legal services, uh, people who aren't lawyers and companies and entities that aren't law firms. They allow them to do their thing, to deliver their services. They observe the interactions between these providers and their clients and customers. They collect data, right? Uh, they, they very carefully control the conditions so that the experiment, you know, doesn't get out of hand or catch fire or do damage to everybody. And at the end of the process, when there's enough data has been collected and analyzed, then we can make an evidence-based decision as to whether to reject or approve this new approach. That's fundamentally all it really is. And when you think about it in those terms, assessing the risk and figuring out what is the reward that can be delivered in exchange for this risk, then it starts to make a bit more sense as a way in which we can meaningfully address a lot of the access to justice issues that are driving the development of these sandboxes. Well, the sandboxes certainly seem to be what most states have decided to do, but there's one state that has bypassed sandboxes altogether and just gone straight into the radical reform of legal regulation. Tell us what's happening in Arizona and why you think it's happening, Jordan. Arizona's really cool what the, what they're doing there. I mean, you know, and, and it's not the first time, of course, Arizona has been a, a pioneer in innovation in legal services regulation, obviously, uh, lawyer advertising going back to, oh gosh, 70s, 80s, I've forgotten when, the ban on, on against lawyers being able to advertise their services first fell thanks to a challenge in Arizona. So Arizona looked at the sandbox approach, which at that point had been adopted by uh, Utah and was being looked at by a few other jurisdictions as well. And they said, you know what? It's got its merits. We kind of like what they're doing, but this is kind of a slower road to progress than we would like, right? We think we can go a little bit faster than this. So they actually took a page from England and Wales, 
which years ago authorized the development of what they called Alternative Business Structures, or ABSs, for legal services. And an ABS in the English and Welsh context, and it is largely, pretty much I think almost entirely the same in the Arizona context, is one in which you don't need to restrict the ownership of the law firm or the legal services entity solely to lawyers. You don't have to restrict the sharing of fees and profits solely to lawyers. You can let people who aren't lawyers, imagine that, actually take a role in owning and operating and working the business. And so effectively, of course, this means setting aside Rule 5.4 of the Rules of Professional Conduct, which obviously is part of the ABA rules, which pretty much every state has more or less copied and pasted into its own ethical and regulatory system. And Arizona looked at 5.4 and more or less decided, based on evidence which had been provided to a task force, look, 5.4 isn't really about protecting the public or about ensuring that people can access services and people get the best legal services they can. It's fundamentally a protectionist measure. And it's meant to keep, it's meant to keep non-lawyers out of legal services provision. So Arizona now has a system whereby you can apply for and receive an ABS license. They have so far already approved, this is like, I guess, what's August now? It's almost like a year old. They've already approved three entities, uh, essentially multidisciplinary partnerships and professional firms. And there are several more in the pipeline awaiting approval, including, by the way, LegalZoom has just recently applied to get an ABS license in Arizona, which I think is an absolutely fascinating and really important development. And I should note, in passing, one of LegalZoom's uh, top, I guess we can call them competitors, although I think they're they're all kind of set in the same direction, Rocket Lawyer, is also one of the approved members of Utah's Sandbox. So we are seeing some of the the, the pioneering and the most well-developed and and best-backed alternative legal services providers, if you will, in this space, taking advantage of these new experimental approaches in Arizona and Utah. Jordan, Arizona also seems to be part of a nationwide push to license paraprofessionals. We've seen the uh, limited license legal technicians uh, be born, live, and die in Washington state. So uh, what's this about and what's it supposed to accomplish? It's actually really interesting, Jim, because paraprofessional regulation, you're right, uh, at least in the United States, uh, does trace its origins most recently back to the uh, the late and lamented LLLTs in, in Washington. And and for those who aren't familiar, the limited licensed legal technician was someone who was not a lawyer, but who was a trained professional who would work, especially in the area of family law, for people who can't afford a lawyer, didn't want to use a lawyer, could provide some basic legal services. And in theory, that was great. And and, and the development and the authorization of LLLTs was a was a significant milestone. In the in the in the, the long-standing process of regulatory reform in the U.S., problem was that the scope of practice for LLLTs was very circumscribed. The costs of acquiring a license were monumental, and as someone I know once said, if you were trying to inspire as little confidence as possible among members of the public in your particular provider, you could not choose a better name than limited licensed legal technician. Right. So in a way, you know, I, I don't want to say it wasn't set up to lose, but it was so strongly circumscribed. Only a few dozen were ever approved over the course of years. And as you as you mentioned, the Supreme Court uh, shut the program down last year. 
However, happily, from my point of view, we have seen recently a wave of authorization of paralegals and paraprofessionals in the U.S. And not to go down into great detail, but Utah created a licensed paralegal practitioner program around the same time it launched its sandbox system. Minnesota is getting ready to move ahead with legal paraprofessionals. New York State actually was one of the pioneers in this area. They developed a program called the Court Navigators Program to help people I think especially those in like eviction or landlord-tenant cases to help them make their way through the court system. And New York's out there now talking about licensing social workers to provide some basic legal tasks. And Arizona's done something even more interesting. Arizona has developed or is in the process of developing a paraprofessional program, which, yes, absolutely, it still can can be a, a kind of a public-facing direct-to-consumer provider, but they also can very much work within law firms and in and, and legal organizations to provide the kind of uh, services that might otherwise be provided by like a clerk or a secretary or even a junior lawyer, but can do so in, I think, a much more cost-effective fashion. They are specifically trained and, 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 and equipped to work with technology and business process improvement. And the reason I think we're seeing this wave of, uh, of paraprofessional authorization is pretty much the same as for the Sandbox and as the, is the same for the ABS in Arizona, is that in these states, the regulators, and this can be a mix of the Supreme Court and the State Bar and, and other stakeholders in the area, they have concluded what should be very clear to all of us, is that the legal profession is interested in serving only an extremely small portion of the entire population of people and businesses and entities that need legal services help, right? We've seen survey after survey that suggests that only maybe 15, 18% of all legal problems and issues ever find their way to a lawyer. Everybody else is out there doing it on their own or getting a friend or family to help them with it or, or just not dealing with it at all. And there is a widespread, I think, recognition. And, and, and it's very gratifying to me to see this at the regulatory level and at the, at the court level to say the legal profession is not going to solve this problem. We have given the legal profession decades of opportunity in order for them to say, yes, we will find ways to serve everybody, even those who would not otherwise afford our services. Hasn't happened not going to happen. So we're going to bring other suppliers in. We're going to try to find a supply side solution to this problem. There is demand side issues as well, which we'd happily talk about later on too. But this is fundamentally what it's about. It is about realizing that the market has needs well beyond what the legal profession is either able or willing to meet. And therefore, we need other providers and other solutions and other options to meet those needs. Send your feedback to Jordan Furlong. (laughs) (laughs) Please do. But before we move on to our next segment, let's take a quick commercial break. The Black Letter Podcast demystifies complicated law and business issues by breaking them down into simple, understandable bites. Hosted by Tom Dunlap of Dunlap, Bennett & Ludwig, this show features fun and informative conversation with esteemed guests like CEOs and former AGs of the CIA. You can listen to Black Letter today on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Now, more than ever, an effective marketing strategy is one of the most important things for your firm. Scorpion can help. With nearly 20 years of experience serving the legal industry, Scorpion has proven methods to help you get the high-value cases you deserve. 
join thousands of attorneys across the country who have turned to Scorpion for effective marketing and technology solutions. For a better way to grow your practice, visit scorpionlegal.com. Welcome back to the Digital Edge on the Legal Talk Network. Today, our subject is the rise of re-regulation in the legal industry. Our guest today is Jordan Furlong. Jordan, you've written some about some important things happening outside the U.S. when it comes to legal re-regulation. Tell us what's going on in the U.K., well, you know, Sharon, it's funny, right? Because some uh, much of what I've just talked about already in this segment probably has a number of, of lawyers in the U.S. pretty hot under the collar in terms of, well, this is outrageous. I, I, I can't believe this is being done. But you compare that to what you're seeing elsewhere, and, and England and Wales is a great example. The legal services regulator there is talking these days with increasing frequency, and I think in all seriousness, about the need for lawyers to undergo periodic requalification. Right. That is, your law license would no longer be considered effectively permanent and irrevocable, other than in cases of malpractice or malfeasance. Uh, but instead, you would have to demonstrate in some fashion that you are still fully competent and proficient in the practice of law to justify your continued licensure. I mean, can you imagine? <laughs> Think about <No>. the reaction, <laughs> right? Think about the reaction most lawyers you know if they were told after 5 or 10 or 15 years in practice, hey, you need to undergo a reassessment process in order to retain your license, right? Uh, but you know what? But the Brits are talking about it. I think they're serious about it. And you know what? The experience is any guide. The innovations that begin on that side of the Atlantic inevitably make their way over to this side. So when you hear about paraprofessionals and sandboxes, I think you need to appreciate this is just the leading edge of a potentially radical revolutionary wave. We'll next move on to another controversial topic. It seems nobody who's taking the bar exam test these days is happy about it. I understand the uh, New York has just announced it's going to be December before they have their results. But does the bar exam still at work? And if not, what could possibly replace it? Well, you know, Jim, the question of whether the bar exam still works depends on what purpose it's supposed to serve. I mean, if the point of the bar exam is to create an artificial barrier for entry into the profession, one that is structured specifically to ensure the continued dominance of white and male individuals from affluent backgrounds to the legal profession, then yeah. It's doing a fantastic job. Well done. <laughs> right? And, and there are extensive studies out there demonstrating the clear exclusionary, if not straightforwardly racist, origins and functions of the bar exam. So we need to take with a large grain of salt any claim that the bar exam exists solely to ensure the competence of new lawyers. Because in addition to being as exclusionary as it is, the bar exam also fails to do what it says that it does to assess competence. Right? The bar exam essentially repeats the law school experience. It just compresses three years of learning into this highly pressurized short period of time. It doesn't tell us anything new about the person who's applying to become a lawyer. It doesn't tell us anything about how effective a lawyer they'd be in practice. And if you want to know about how horrible the bar examination process has been over the last year, go on to Twitter and look for a hashtag called Barpocalypse, and <laughs> you will find stories that will raise the hair in the back of your neck, or it should. The deeply disturbing, extensive accounts of, frankly, trauma that bar applicants, especially women, have gone through over the course of the last year. 
So I do want to say that there is a reform movement underway with regard to bar admission. In fairness, the National Committee of Bar Examiners has released a report talking about creating a better bar exam. There's a great organization that I serve on uh, the advisory board called the Institute for the Advancement of the American Legal Profession. They released a report last year called Building a Better Bar. And that takes a close look at the core competencies of lawyering and how could we design a new way of doing it. But here's what's most interesting to me. Oregon right now, and potentially even New York State, are looking at ways in which, set aside entirely reforming the bar exam itself, they're talking about opening up new pathways to licensure. So that instead of taking the bar exam, you could, as a for instance, take extensive clinical experience courses in law school, and that would qualify you. Or you could undertake extensive degrees of supervised practice with a practicing lawyer after graduation, but before being called to the bar. Not dissimilar, by the way, to the articling system we have here in Canada. And what I like about these two approaches is that not only should they be considered at least equivalent to the bar exam, I think they're superior because they actually measure and assess how good you are in practice with legal issues in practical real world contexts with actual clients. So I'm really excited about what this portends for the possibility of reform in lawyer licensing and, and frankly, lawyer formation across the board. I think it's really neat what could happen here. I just like that bar apocalypse. That's, that's pretty good. <laughs> um, so let, let's look ahead and see where this is going to take us. Project out 5, 10, or 20 years, whatever you want to. What will be the state of legal services regulation and lawyer regulation, which, as you've said, is not the same thing? Wow. Uh, and I should probably know better than to make predictions after being in this game as long as I have. I think what we can safely say is that in five years' time, we will have seen at least several more U.S. states undergoing re-regulation of their regimes for the regulation of, of legal services delivery and the ongoing competence of lawyers. So I think we're gonna, we, we may see some more states create sandboxes, although I think in five years' time, we'll probably have, number one, a couple of more states that have gone the ABS route like Arizona. And if we get to that point, then... And here's the thing, the more Arizonas we have, the more ABS uh, jurisdictions we have, the less likely it is that sandboxes will be set up because a sandbox is essentially kind of a, a short-term middle way. It's a moderate approach. Well, it's a pilot project. Let's figure it out. Let's take our time. But if we have enough jurisdictions that have said, no, listen, we're just going to go straight to the ABS system, then I think those will start to catch on. And, and I think we will probably see that become far more common uh, in the space of about five years' time. What I will say is about 20 years from now, I think we're going to look back and wonder, how did we ever do it the way we did for so long? <laughs> you know, in terms of regulating legal services, licensing lawyers and, and, and regulating them, knowing how many problems there were with the system, but just not wanting to admit them to ourselves. So in 20 years time, I am both hopeful and optimistic that we will have been in the new normal for so long. It'll just be normal. We will just take <laughs> it for granted. This is the way it's supposed to be. Let's hope you're right. Well, Jordan, I've spent a lot of my time involved with access to justice issues, and it's certainly critical. But every lawyer listening to this podcast has to be saying now, wait a minute, you're licensing new competitors for me during a pandemic? That's kind of crazy. Do you appreciate their concerns? Uh, I, I can appreciate their concerns because obviously anybody who's trying to make a living in these extremely challenging times has to be listened to with, with, with care and attention. But I think that anybody who would be opposed to these kind of 
regulated reform efforts need to look at it in, in a couple of ways. The first thing is this. I mentioned earlier, the entire reason why these new providers are being licensed is to serve this vast population of people and businesses that aren't hiring lawyers, right? And that, and that lawyers, again, to make this point, are not going to serve, right? I don't think you could find a lawyer anywhere in the United States who charges less than effectively. I shouldn't say you couldn't find them. I'm sure you could. But you'd find only a bare handful of lawyers who charge, what, $100 per hour as an hourly rate or less, right? And you've got stats out there that prove a significant percentage of Americans, and Canadians aren't any in a better position, they couldn't even cobble together $500 in an emergency. So asking them to pay hundreds of dollars in a single hour to a lawyer, that's not just unrealistic, it's insulting, right? So when, when you look at these new providers coming in, they're there to serve the great majority of people and organizations that lawyers have shown no interest in helping out. Right? This isn't a matter of competition because lawyers aren't serving the people whom these alternative providers are there to help. That's the bottom line. And, and the second point I want to make, and it's, it particularly is appropriate to Arizona's paraprofessional program, is this. And, and Justice Ann Timmer uh, in Arizona made this point. I think it was an interview with Bob Ambrogi. She said, look, lawyers shouldn't be worried about competing with these new providers. They should be hiring them. They should bring them into their firms. These are trained professionals. They are savvy. They are adept with new technology and business process. They can be more productive for you than anybody right now that you have on staff in nearly as much of a cost-effective system. We, we are long past the point where law firms can keep on doing their work in this kind of linear, sequential, reinventing the wheel fashion, right? I just don't think it's feasible for you to try to be profitable as a law firm without employing some degree of tech, some degree of process improvement. And what these new types of paraprofessionals offer, in addition to solutions for people who can't afford lawyers, is another option for lawyers and law firms to do their work, serve their clients, and turn a profit. So those are two reasons I think that your, your everyday average lawyer should be in support of these kinds of approaches. Before we move on to our next segment, let's take a quick commercial break. As the largest legal-only call center in the U.S., Alert Communications helps law firms and legal marketing agencies with new client intake. Alert captures and responds to all leads 24-7, 365 as an extension of your firm in both English and Spanish. Alert uses proven intake methods, customizing responses as needed, which earns the trust of clients and improves client retention. To find out how Alert can help your law office, call 866-827-5568 or visit alertcommunications.com forward slash LTN. You went to law school to be a lawyer, not an accountant. Take advantage of NOTA, a no-cost IOLTA management tool that helps solo and small law firms track client funds down to the penny. Enjoy peace of mind with one-click reconciliation, automated transaction alerts, and real-time bank data. Visit trustnota.com forward slash legal to learn more. Terms and conditions may apply. Welcome back to the Digital Edge on the Legal Talk Network. Today, our subject is the rise of re-regulation in the legal industry, and our guest is Jordan Furlong, an internationally renowned legal sector analyst, author, speaker, and consultant, deeply invested in a better future for the legal profession and the society it serves. Jim, I think we're about out of time, but I know you have one burning question you would like to ask. Well, 
why, why should working lawyers care about any of this? Shouldn't their focus be on doing their work, finding, billing their clients, billing hours, making money? What does regulation reform have to do with them anyway? Well, Jim, absolutely. I mean, if you're if you're a working lawyer, yes, you do have to be concerned with all of these things. And if the smaller the practice you're in, you also have to work, you know, think about running your business and marketing and and all these things. But but fundamentally, I think if you're a lawyer who truly doesn't care about anything other than making as much money as they can, you know, and, and believe me, I have I have come across not very many, I'm happy to say, but I've come across a few lawyers of of that type in all types and sizes of firm. Yeah, none of this talk of reform should interest you. You should feel free to oppose it if you want. But I think you've completely missed the point of being a lawyer, right? We, we are professionals. And among other things, that means we serve the public good and we advance the public interest. As I'm fond of saying, a law firm is not a pizza parlor and it's not a hair salon. It's a vitally important conduit for people to exercise their rights in a liberal democracy. And the legal profession has been given a number of powers and benefits that are conditioned, I think, upon our accepting that that responsibility and role in in our society. And so re-regulation, to my mind, is at least in part about the legal profession trying to refocus upon and, and reclaim that sense of professionalism and social duty that I think we've kind of lost over the last couple of decades in particular. I, I think what should really make lawyers enthused and, and charged up is creating the best kind of regulatory structure that will maximize the effectiveness of lawyers and all legal services providers while sil- simultaneously reducing the risk they represent, especially to the most vulnerable client populations out there, and allowing us to be the best lawyers we can be and for people and businesses to get the best kind of legal services they can, and fundamentally to let people obtain the maximum legal remedies and solutions that our legal system promises. That, to my mind, should be our professional focus. And that's why I think re-regulation, regulatory reform matters or ought to matter to every lawyer. Well, thank you for joining us today, Jordan. I know we all have a hard time seeing the the future of the legal profession, and, and there's been a lot of missteps along the way, and I, too, regret the absence of uh, servant leadership. I wish that the practice of law were not based so much on money, but it simply is. But just exploring everything that you've talked about today has been, I'm sure, of enormous help to our listeners. So thank you again for joining us. Thank you, Sharon and Jim both. Take care. And that does it for this edition of the Digital Edge, Lawyers and Technology. And remember, you can subscribe to all of the editions of this podcast at LegalTalkNetwork.com or on Apple Podcasts. And if you enjoyed our podcast, please rate us in Apple Podcasts. Thanks for joining us. Goodbye, Miss Sharon. Happy trails, cowboy. Thanks for listening to the Digital Edge, produced by the broadcast professionals at Legal Talk Network. Join Sharon Nelson and Jim Calloway for their next podcast covering the latest topic related to lawyers and technology. Subscribe to the RSS feed on LegalTalkNetwork.com or in iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.